Women of War is recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains references to alcoholism, child neglect, child abuse, child death, anti-Semitism and atrocities committed during World War II. It also contains some naughty language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. Hannah, a PhD student researching women's political history and hoping that someone will give her a job one day. But who funds the humanities anymore? And I'm Nicola and I'm tired. That's really fair. Yeah, okay. Uh, This is Women of War, a podcast where we examine the lives and experiences of women throughout historical wars. So what's on the board today, Nicola? That's that's a very good question. I figured we'd offend the French one more time. Oh, we're very good at that. We're very good at offending French people. Sorry, Sorry, Eveline. Yep, Sorry. Mon petit chali. Um, so we are doing uh, Edith Piaf today. What do you know about Edith Piaf? Not a lot and probably not how to pronu- correctly pronounce her name. And she does have a little accent above Piaf? the E, so it's like Edith. But like, Edith? I just think Edith. Edith. Because Edith Piaf, mate. Edith, I think Piaf. Piaf. Edith Piaf. Okay. Edith Piaf. We. Oui. So like, what do you know about Edith Piaf? I really know nothing. She sang. Like, I know the song, like, that's Lovey and Rose, probably one of her most famous yeah. songs. Actually, she was in Jeopardy the other day that I watched. She was in Jeopardy the other yeah, day. Yeah, she was I, the answer. Oh, I, I used to really like Jeopardy. And then they'd be like, baseball games from the 1890s. And you'd be like, I don't give a fucking shit. It's very American. Yes. I know yeah. about Babe Ruth, and that's about it. Yeah, that's fair. All right. Well, Edith Piaf, in addition to singing, also did other things. Very impressive. She did many other things. What else? That's a really good question. So, funny enough, um, Edith is the first woman we've covered for this podcast who didn't A, die during or as a result of the war she was involved in, or B, have the consequences of the war follow her to the grave, like um, Tokyo Rose. Good. Spoilers, I guess. Um, though, So, though Edith Piaf lived up to the early 1960s, we're going to focus mostly on her life leading up to World War II and the war itself, and then we're going to just going to lightly touch on her post-war life. A little stroke. Yeah, little little, little stroke little of the post-war life. A little delicate bird foot. All right, so any questions, watch La Vie en Rose, the Marianne Cotillard film about it, which I have not watched because it is a film and has fictional elements in it, I believe, so I decided to leave that out of my research until after we'd finished recording this. I feel like you shouldn't recommend a movie you haven't watched. Well, I've seen bits of it, and it's really, really good what I've oh, okay. seen. Like, it's right. amazing. She won the Best Actress Oscar okay, for it. And she was this. in French, so, like, that's pretty... Like, that was, like, the first time it had happened oui, for France. Oui. Um, oui, oui. Molto bene. <laughs> So, Is shall, that Italian? Yes. So, let me read you. So, shall we tell the listening people who are listening about the life and times of Edith Piaf? Edith Piaf? Edith Piaf. Edith Piaf. Was not born Edith Piaf. <gasps> I know. She was born Edith Giovanna Gasson. Gasson? Gasson? Gasson. She was born Edith Giovanna Gasson in December 1915 to two poor parents who basically lived on the streets of Paris, which works out well because according to legend, Edith was born or almost born on the streets outside the hospital. Her mum liked to exaggerate, so, you know, take it as you will. Uh, If you were making up a character for a French wartime drama and decided to give the character Edith Piaf's backstory, you'd probably get told off for making things a little bit too ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, First off, auspiciously, or non-auspiciously, Edith was named for the nurse, Edith Cavill, whose execution at the hands of the Germans for treason in World War I made her into a propaganda gift for the Allied cause and may even helped bring the Americans into the war. But if you want to know more about that, Edith, wait to one to five business news and we will get to her. Edith's father was an acrobat and her mother was a singer on the streets. 
Edith went blind for a while as a child. She grew up in a brothel. She was dirt poor. She was discovered singing on the side of the road and became a global superstar. Edith grew up on the streets of Belleville in Paris. It was very much a working class area with everyone from apple sellers to bakers to sex workers to xylophone makers packed into the tiny flats. There's a joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Edith's mother, Annette Giovanna Maillard, was 20 at the time and had met Edith's father, Louis Gasson, just before the start of the First World War in 1914. They met at a fair where Annette's mother was running a flea circus. Legit. Annette and Louis married quickly because of the war, and actually two days after their wedding in September 1914, Louis was already off with the army. That's not a nice honeymoon. No. I mean, I have, I have whiplash from that summary. Yeah. <laughs> that was a lot just happened in, like, a paragraph. Edith Piaf's life is just a summary of, like, everything happens so much. All the time. All, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Louis, her father, was from a circus family with 13 siblings. That's 13 too many. Some of whom toured around with their father as equestrian performers, or in Louis's case, acrobats. He was also very, very short, just under five feet tall. I always thought Edith Piaf was short because of malnutrition, but no, her dad was also very short, and malnutrition did not help. Never helps. Never helps. The people of Paris and France were often hungry throughout the First World War because their country was being bombed, as they say, to fuck. Annette was forced to sing in the streets while her mother, Aisha, looked after Edith to scrounge up some coin, or they'd be in line at the soup kitchen with the rest of the poor Bellevillians. Annette mostly sang drinking songs in what we would call torch ballads, or if we were French, we'd call chanson réaliste. So like the TikTok trend at the moment for sea shanties? No. Okay. Not at all. All right. I'm sorry. Like, you know when you think of like a cliche French singer in like a black dress, like just sending it in a microphone? With like the cigarette in the like the long yes. cigarette holder? That is what you're thinking of. Right. Yeah. That is what a chanson réaliste sort of okay. sounds yep. like. Yep. One good day for singing would be Sundays, where there would often be the Sunday fair and everyone going to the church, so the singers could often make a few francs while everyone wandered around, COVID be damned. <laughs> Despite Annette's efforts, she didn't really seem to want to be a mother, and by 1918 she had permanently left Edith with her mother Aisha. She then fucked off to Turkey to sing on tour, and I believe it was here she gave birth to Edith's brother. He was put into the care of the French social services for a while, or whatever they were called in 1918, les social services. Probably not, but yeah. Louis came home to a bébé and an absent wife. And also an absent mother-in-law. That's... So the baby was by itself? Yes. Okay. Just chilling? Yep. All right. Ica cleaned apartments to make ends meet, but then spent those ends in cafes and bars. And Edith was sickly and malnourished. There are differing accounts, but at the end of the day, Louis and his sister Zaza, or maybe both of them, took Edith and took her to their parents' place. So Edith was taken out of the arms of her neglectful maternal grandmother and passed into the arms of her retired paternal grandmother. Well, surely things would be better, right? You'd think, wouldn't you? Her grandparents, the Gassions, had retired from the touring circus business and had first worked as grocers in Cannes, waved to Charlotte Corday's ghost as we go by. Hi, Charlotte. And then moved to the town of Bernay, where her grandmother, Leontine Gasson, had become the manager of a brothel. Bernay is in Normandy, which should make anyone who knows about World War II's ears prick up. Mine just ding. Ding. It is also quite near Lisieux probably, which has the grave of Sainte Therese of Lisieux, a popular pilgrimage site. She was a little busy running the brothel to give Edith the attention that she craved, but Edith's health did improve. That is, Edith's grandmother, not Saint Therese. Saint Therese did not run a brothel. She was a Carmelite nun who eventually qualified for sainthood and is apparently one of the most popular saints in the world. Look, she could have run a brothel. We don't know. Everyone loves a young French woman who dies young and horribly. Truly, anyway. 
So were brothels legal in France? I believe so. They were regulated and then often the officials who inspected them would come back once their working day was over and partake of the women working there. So the industry was well established. Yep, sounds right. To be a registered sex worker... I nearly said registered sex offender. (laughs) (laughs) Slightly different. To be a registered sex worker in France, you did need to submit to lectures from priests and examinations from medical workers on certain days and often work under a pseudonym. But I think some sex workers even today like to work under a different name um, if they need to decouple themselves from their identity or just so clients can't find them on social media. There were also unregistered sex workers in France, but we haven't met them yet in either story. So it wasn't a bad brothel. It had three stories and a pianist in the salon. Very lovely. Very ambient music. It was here Edith began to recover her health, and she had many surrogate mothers in the women who lived and worked in the brothel. Unfortunately, though Edith mostly got better, her eyes did not. She had developed a condition called acute keratitis, where your corneas get inflamed, and her eyelids could not open all the way. Today, the disease is easily treated by antibiotics, but they hadn't been invented yet. So she took care of herself, walking around with her hands stretched out, and if she needed help, one of the women in the house was usually on hand to lend a hand. Handy. (laughs) The sex workers doted on Edith, buying her toys and treats. Eventually, the doctor who regularly visited, either to partake of the women or to inspect them... Or both. Or both. The doctor checked Edith's eyes and prescribed some treatments, which, because antibiotics hadn't been invented yet, didn't work. They bandaged her eyes and Edith was told to rest. So the women of the Bernay brothel took it upon themselves to make Edith better. When the local priest came, either to partake of the women or pray for them... Or both. Or both. The women, already praying on their rosaries, asked the priest to instead pray for Edith's vision. Eventually, Edith's grandmother began to organise pilgrimages to nearby Lisieux to pray at the grave of St. Therese for the restoration of Edith's sight. According to Biaf herself, one Sunday in August, when she was six years old, her grandmother and the women of the brothel had gone to Lisieux and prayed for her vision. And lo, ten days later, on August 25th, on the feast day of St. Louis, Edith's sight had returned. <gasps> Sacre bleu! Sacre bleu! She probably also still had bandaged eyes and was continually resting her vision. So, you know, but that's got nothing to do with it. Irrelevant. And the feast day of St. Louis was a good sign, too, as her father's name was Louis, remember? There are lots of Louis in this story. So Um, many Louis. And some things do just take time. There are a few tall tales in the life of Edith Piaf, some told by Edith Piaf herself. She did, however, call the day she got her vision back one of her happiest memories. With her eyesight restored, she could go to school, where though she was a bright pupil, she was bullied by the other children who were probably jealous their grandmothers didn't get to manage the local brothel. Her musical ability also began to grow with her confidence. So did she spend her entire childhood at the brothel? No. Um, we're not sure why, but after her vision returned, her father came back to Benet and got her and they joined another circus. There's a few theories as to why Louis returned and took Edith away. One, after she could see, he was like, ah, oh, she, she's going to realise she's in a brothel. I don't know what that accent was. And that's why he took Definitely her. not French. And another theory was his mother was like, please get your shit together. I am trying to run a business here. Slightly better French? Slightly better. Alternatively, Louis was an entertainer and was like, hey, a cute kid might get me some more cash if she's the one passing the hat around. He didn't know how right he was. So for a while, Louis and Edith travelled around with a certain circus. And then Louis, who was a bit Gallic in his temperaments, had a falling out with the circus boss. So, Louis decided to go it alone as an acrobat, with his daughter standing in as money collector and general cute child. They toured through both Belgium and France. And then one day, Louis demanded Edith sing for the crowd. Now, Edith herself changed this story, and sometimes she claimed to have sung La Marseille. La Marseille. La Marseille. La Marseille. I've never been able to say it. I should be able to. The only song she knew the words to, but later on she would also claim to have sung L'International instead. 
That, if you don't know, is the sort of like the unofficial international socialist anthem. Bold of you to assume the left could ever agree on anything. The dream. The dream. L'International was originally written in French to the tune of La Marseille. Thank you. Thank you. But there are many translated versions, and most famously it was the anthem of the Soviet Union for a time. Uh, but she did probably sing La Marseille. I mean, she wasn't even 12. Regardless, even with barely any experience or training, Edith was a natural singer. And Louis and she quickly realised that on the days she sang, they made far more cash than they did when Louis just did his acrobatic act. From that young age, Edith pushed through illness and tiredness to sing for the people and enjoyed the adoration it brought her. In 1930, Louis and his new parter... Parter? I am so tired. In 1930, Louis and his new partner, Jean Lot and Edith moved to Belleville. Belleville was one of the main slum areas of Paris, but did have an arts and culture scene, just not as famous or as developed as its famed contemporary slum, Montmartre, which is where the Moulin Rouge was and is, and a very low-quality McDonald's, but that probably wasn't there in the 1930s. Edith lived with Louis and Jean, but soon Jean gave birth to Anne Denise. And though her dad and stepmother were welcoming, the apartment was très crowded, and Edith spent a lot of time exploring Belleville. She began to sing on street corners and in small musical cafes, where her unpolished but powerful voice and small stature drew many crowds. Look, the short person can sing. <laughs> she also worked a bunch of odd jobs, but did not last very long in many of them. As Edith kept gaining and losing work, she met a girl named Simone Berteau, a gymnast. She would soon become Edith's best buddy and would be the one to hawk sheet music or collect coins from people on the street where Edith sang. She would also perform some gymnastic tricks. Simone Berteau would later claim to be Edith's half-sister, which is not true. There's so many unreliable narrators in this story, it's almost like all of history is a crowdsourced unreliable mess. No. Really? I know. You may also see Simone referred to as Maman, which was her nickname. A few people in this story were more known by nicknames, but I've kept them out to simplify things for my little smooth peanut brain. It's like an egg. Simone and Edith. Wow, that rain got really hard. That is very loud rain. Sorry for my tin roof. It's okay. Simone and Edith lived in a hotel together for a bit, and soon afterwards Edith met a man named Louis Dupont, for whom I will use his nickname... Because Edith's dad was also named Louis. So Talk e- about marrying your father. Yeah, I know. Right? So Edith's boyfriend Louis was also called Petit Louis, which I assume is also a yogurt flavour. Louis by himself is Edith's dad, Petit Louis is the boyfriend, and in 1933, Petit Louis also became the baby daddy, as he and Edith, who were at this point, I think, still living with Simone, had a baby they named Marcel. She's also sometimes called Cecile, but I'm sticking with Marcel because let's get dark, Marcel doesn't exactly stick around for a long time. So don't worry about writing her name down. After Marcel was born, Edith, then aged 17, and Petit Louis went to live with Petit Louis's mother. Though she doted on Marcel, Edith's earning potential as a singer was a lot greater than Petit Louis doing whatever he did. Probably working at a yogurt factory? No, Nicola, he was not. Petit Miam! No. So she had to go back out to sing on the streets and in cafes, wherever she could get work. From 1933 to 1934, as Hitler took power in Germany, Edith also toured in a trio where she was known as Miss Edith and where she also may have cheated on Petit Louis. Hey, she was 18, on tour, singing to the sexy French soldiers, so who can blame her? Petit Louis was jealous of Edith's earnings, even though they came back to him and Marcel. This jealousy did not help their relationship, and soon Edith made it clear she planned to take Marcel and leave him, and move somewhere else, perhaps Pigalle. One day, while singing on the street with Simone as her fellow performer, Edith was invited to audition for a nightclub by a woman dressed in men's clothes. 
This woman was Lulu, who owned a club called, imaginatively, Lulu's, that was, unbeknownst to Edith, frequented by sex workers, lesbians, and members of the French mafia, La Milieu. Milieu. No word, La Milieu. Milieu. Oh my god, I can't La speak Milieu. French. Why do you keep This is the last French that we're doing, she said, knowing that the next episode <laughs> she was writing was also going to France. <laughs> It's because people keep fucking invading France and France keeps invading people. I know. <laughs> You're the one who wanted to make a podcast. <laughs> I have regrets now. No word on whether any of them were lesbian sex workers who were also part of Le Milieu, but I hope they were. I really hope they were. I hope that Le Milieu was just lesbian sex workers. Oh, boy. Um, I feel like telling her that Lulu's was frequented by sex workers would just make Edith want to go, like, more. Like, it's very homey. Like, oh, yeah. just like just like where I grew up. Lovely. This is the good old days for Edith. Yep. Like, this is what she's used to. The salad days. So Edith auditioned for Lulu's and got the job singing in the club. This codified her belief, perhaps, that she could sing her way out of poverty. And she'd be a lot more likely to be discovered in a club than in the gutter. So she went home to Petit Louis and told him the good news. Petit Louis was, as the French say, le piste. He refused to let his unmarried baby mama sing in a lesbian club full of sex workers in La Milieu and issued Edith with an ultimatum. So, this is some roleplay bit. Okay. I'll be Petit Louis, you be Edith. Action. Hey, Charlie, you must refuse the offer altogether or our life together will be over. Cool. So long. Farewell. Au vide saint adieu. I'm going to pack up my stuff and myself and go back to Pigalle to live with someone. And scene. And with that, Edith packed up her stuff and Marcel, not in the same bag, and went back to Pigard to once again live with Simone. They both began performing at Lulu's and on the streets during market days. According to the book I read on Edith Piaf, Pigard was sort of, socially speaking, between Montmartre and Belleville. Not as artsy and famous as Montmartre, and there's no Baz Luhrmann film on it, but there was a possibility for social ascension in Pigard that there simply wasn't in Belleville. Pigard also had a better McDonald's. They got some good nugs. <laughs> good nugs. While performing at Lulu's, both Edith and Simone got on fairly well with the sex workers and tried to avoid La Milieu, but Edith did end up having an affair or two with some of the gangsters. It was here Edith's musical repertoire began to take on something recognisably piaffy, sultry songs of lost love and life on the streets, even as she tried to work away from poverty. She was also trying to work away from Petit Louis, which didn't always work. He would beg for her to come back to him, try and lure her and Marcel back to live with him and his mother. Edith's lifestyle didn't help. She often had to leave Marcel alone, asleep in the hotel they were living in, while she and Simone went to perform. One morning, as Edith returned from working in the club, the hotel keeper took her aside and was like, Oh, hey, Edith, your husband came during the night and took your baby home. And Edith was like, What the fuck? That's a very fair reaction. Mm. Uh, Petit Louis had left a message for Edith. If you want Marcel, you have to come back home to me. Presumably, this would also mean giving up singing in Lulu's, where she had earned a regularish, decentish wage. And so Edith made the hard decision. She told Louis she would not come back and he could take care of Marcel. She also sent money back regularly to pay for Marcel's care, and according to Simone later on, it was never spoken again. Perhaps reeling from the loss, Simone and Edith had a falling out, and Edith took up with the La Milieu gangster, usually known as Henry Valet. She also helped him with some muggings, which, you know, in the scheme of things in this story is not really a big deal. Not really a big deal at all. It's pretty minor. 
During this time while singing on the street, Edith was also spotted by the manager of a club called Petit Jardin, which means little garden in French, but is also the name of a Stockholm-based artisanal terrarium company. Relevant? No, but it is cute. Yes. I'm picturing like Madame Brussels on Burke Street, like down to the plastic grass, although plastic grass hadn't been invented yet. Anyway, so she started singing at Petit Jardin, and while there, the band leader, a little fellow known as uh, Django Reinhardt, paused for dramatic effect, notice Hannah is staring at me. Notice some more, please. Okay, let me just finish and I'll explain. So Django Reinhardt, the band leader, did warn Edith that his new pianist, the Ukraine-born, French-based Jewish man, Norbert Glansberg, I say again, Norbert Glansberg, didn't speak French, but he'd try and keep up with her. In the classic style of bad musical biopics everywhere, Glansberg later recalled, huh, she's got a nice voice, but she's very unpolished. She probably won't go very far, probably won't do anything for me later. Famous last words. Django Reinhardt, who was born in Belgium to French Romani parents, was the founder of the Quintet du Hot Club de France, the originators of gypsy jazz. That shit slaps. The name here to remember, though, is actually Norbert Glansberg. Norbert Glansberg. I repeat, Norbert Glansberg. Note that down for later. At this time, Edith was still seeing Henry Villette, but was realising she may have made a tiny mistake in going out and getting involved with a gangster. And was trying to just kind of extricate herself from his life. After the murder of a mutual friend of Edith and Valette's, Edith had had enough fare. She told Valette they were through. He invited her to a cafe and said he'd shoot her if she didn't come home with him. So she's she's not in great relationships. She is not. A, in good I'm going to take your baby unless you come home with me. B, I'm going to shoot you unless you come home with me. To be fair, I kind of like the fact that Louis was like, you know what, I will take responsibility for Marcel. For the next six months or so. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, Marcel. So they, he invites her to a cafe. She's what happens? A, he's at a cafe. She's like, I'm, he's like, I'm going to shoot you if you don't come. Edith dared him, and he did. But the bullet only grazed her neck. Perhaps it was St. Therese again. Aww. After Edith and Villette split up, yeah, gunshot is just, that's the end of a relationship. Very Hamilton. Very Hamilton. It seems Simone did come back into Edith's life. Due to, well, you know, everything we just said in the past 20 minutes, you can probably guess Edith had developed some attachment issues, and this didn't help. So she took up with three dudes at the same time, which I admire the stamina, if not the reasoning. (laughs) Though her personal life was sort of in a tailspin, Edith's professional life was getting, if not good, then at least established. She was singing at a few clubs under various stage names and also sang on the streets, which wasn't great for her personal life because it turns out her estranged mother was also living in Pigalle and tracked her down. Annetta was at this point a barely functional alcoholic singing in bars where she was paid in glasses of wine. She would often turn up asking Edith for money, and even though Edith sent money back to Marcel on the regular, Edith also sent money to her mother. By 1935, Edith's friends were wondering how Edith could get through it. She was performing constantly, her mum was a disaster, she couldn't see her daughter, and she was having multiple affairs. Edith found strength through both her singing and her faith. Though she wasn't a regular attendee of Mass, Edith often did pray at churches in between performances. And then, in June 1935, tragedy struck. Petite Louis came to Edith as she worked and told her Marcel had developed meningitis, which was then considered incurable. Marcel underwent the then-experimental lumbar puncture in order to try and preserve her life, but sadly, on July 7th, Marcel passed away, at the age of two. Edith, in her grief, slept with a man in order to get the money to pay for Marcel's burial. There's a few different iterations of how this transaction actually occurred, but the prevailing one seems to be that the price was 10 francs. Edith went through with it, but when the man found out what it was for, he gave her more money. A week after Marcel's funeral, there was a protest on Bastille Day. Yes, happy birthday. Thank you. 
400,000 members of various socialist and communist parties marched through Paris, calling for peace, bread and liberty. And all power to the Soviets. Except for that last bit. And also, like, a big, there was a big left-wing movement coming into the government of France at the time. Through the 1930s, Edith was not the only French person struggling. Hell, she wasn't the only European person struggling, though for future reference, cameo Nancy Wake was having a ball of a time. There were mass struggles for workers' rights, not enough money going around, and that guy, um, Hitler, I think his name was, was amassing power and flouting the anti-armament and militarisation clauses of the Treaty of Versailles with all the enthusiasm of someone with a lot of enthusiasm and hatred. But that wasn't on Edith's radar because radar hadn't become common knowledge yet. One October day in 1935, she and Simone decided to busk near the Arc de Triomphe when an older man came over and said, only in French, Hey kid, you're going to ruin your voice if you keep belting out songs like that. And it's true. Though Edith's natural raw talent was clear from the beginning, over-singing an incorrect technique could, like it did to Adele, damage her voice. Edith, however, responded, only in French, I sing to eat man, I gotta sing like this, to eat. So the guy says, I'm Louis Le Play, and I run Le Gurney's Cabaret. Come audition for me in a few days. So we're going to call this Louis Le Play. So many Louis. Uh, by the way, no funny business here, Le Play was gay. In fact, his job before running Le Gurney's was to run a basement club in Montmartre aimed at gay men. There were also rumours that Le Play was somehow involved in La Milieu, thanks to his time working in Montmartre. Thank you. That was not at all condescending. <laughs> when you cut me, I liked it. <laughs> So, just put a pin in that. What are we putting a pin in? The rumours. The rumors. Le play was somehow involved with La Milieu. Putting a pin in that. Yep. Edith auditioned for Le play, and he was like, hell yes, can you start this month? I don't know what that was. <laughs> <laughs> there were three things he wanted to change. One, Edith's repertoire. It needed to be expanded. Two, she had to wear something better than what she had on. Edith did do a lot of knitting, apparently, but she rarely finished projects. And finally, Le play was like... Edith Gasson isn't that great of a name. What stage names have you used? Edith ran through those she had used, and none of those were doing it for the play. Finally, he reflected that when he first saw Edith, she was so small and light, like a small sparrow. Why shouldn't they put that in her name? La Mom Menue was already taken, but what about the slang term for sparrow? Piaf. And Edith said, sure, why not? Yeah, why not? So she was so she was terrified with stage fright the first time she performed, but the audience was enraptured by this tiny woman in black with a white scarf with a voice that seemed to fill the room. Just do, do like do small people not sing? I don't I understand why they're so obsessed with her okay. height. It's one of I don't want to wax poetic about Edith Piaf too much because I hate it's this is it's we can't put too much Okay, so people would talk about her voice, it just seemed to come from everywhere. Like it was almost like a religious experience. This is before proper like audio engineering was invented, remember? But also yeah. she was so small and she sang with so much passion and so much she just stood there and sang. It was it was like enrapturing to the audience. Okay. It's hard to explain unless you yeah. watch it. Yeah, and yeah. you have to know the context. Yeah. It's just really hard. So a few nights following another of her shows, she was given flowers after her performance, the first time she'd ever received them. There was a sense that some of the audience were there to gawk at this girl from the gutter, but hey, she knocked their socks off. Fuck them. She was still uncomfortable and stiff on stage, but her voice carried through any awkwardness. So there was this sense that Edith was going somewhere, and so she needed to make a record. So she had to get publishers interested. So what she needed first was someone to write songs just for her. Yeah. They'd build up a catalogue, then they'd record it, then she'd be famous, and then profit. The first composer Edith met was Jacques Bourgeau, a poet and French historian. Like, he studied French history. He wasn't just a historian who was also French. Hi, Who became both Edith's composer, but also her mentor and friend. 
Edith would teach Jacques street slang and Jacques helped Edith work on her diction and speech so she could talk real fancy. So it's the French version of My Fair Lady. Yeah, but not shit. I know more about German regionalisms and accents, but France also has like very region-specific slang, very region-specific dialects and accents. Um, She also worked with Jacques Canetti, who hosted a radio show called Classic Hits Breakfast, 1044am. <laughs> Wait, no. Radio Cité, who heard her at La Gurney's and was like, holy hell, I have to get this kid on my review. That's review with a U. And for the next 12 weeks, she performed on the radio for Paris. Good reviews were pouring in, and finally, so did offers from a couple of publishers. The day before her 20th birthday on December 18th, 1935, Edith recorded her first album with Canetti at the Polydor Recording Studio. The same month, Edith cameoed in a film, La Garçon, as a singer in a lesbian bar, similar to Lulu's nightclub. With an album and a film in the same month, Edith was on the way. She continued at Lurganaise too, because regular work... What is that thing you speak of, regular work? Regular work. And she also loved to perform live. She and the play bonded and became close, and the play ensured she was safe thanks to the protection he paid to La Milieu. This wasn't as easy as it sounded, as Edith kept going out with various gangsters. Oh my god, Edith. In early 1936, Edith performed at a circus gala, which is more fancy than it sounds, and was booked for Cannes and other radio appearances. And then, on April 5th, 1936, Edith rang La Play's apartment and an unfamiliar voice answered the phone. It was a police officer. La Play had been murdered. Dun, dun. Edith was forced to hand over the names of all of her exes, who were La Milieu, and even she was suspected of murder, though eventually the police did let her go. In the criminal justice system, murders of French nightclub owners are considered especially enos. These crimes are investigated by an elite squad of detectives known as the Nightclub Investigations Unit. These are their stories. This took me a long time to get what you were doing. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't tell from the confusion on my face. I was like, is this true? Why were they especially heinous? Enos. The police also took Simone and sent her to school for wayward girls, though many of Edith's other friends felt that this was for the best, as Simone was a bad influence on Edith's habits. The play's death and Simone's absence shook Edith and she felt all alone in the world. That said, the murder did wonders for her publicity and her name was often in headlines in connection to the case. No publicity is bad publicity. That's right. You want to be a producer? Yeah. She began to sing at a different cabaret and resolved to focus on her career to help her past her grief. In less than two years, she had lost her daughter, her mentor La Play, and her friend Simone. Jacques Canetti organised for Edith to do more performances at other cabarets and make another record with Polydor, but due to the lingering presence of La Milieu and now the Corsican Mafia, her friend Robert Yule also began to act as Edith's bodyguard. She also began to work with another composer, Raymond Asso. Raymond Asso found her talented but unreliable and was reluctant to work with her, finding her rough and a bit too much of a party girl. Also, you know, maybe not good to work with her if she's got gangsters around because that didn't involve us. Oh, it's the music industry. There's always gangsters in the music There's just so much illegal shit happens in the music. Gangsters paradise. Gangsters paradise. (laughs) While on tour in 1936, Edith lost her identity card and sent a letter to Bourgeot saying this had inspired her to get her life together and disentangle herself from La Milieu saying it was what La Plague would have wanted. Things were looking up for Edith, again, and down for Europe, again. When Simone returned, having been released from the school for wayward girls... I wrote girls, that line! It's so funny! <laughs> Sorry! <laughs> with another person to support, Edith went back to singing in a seedier cabaret, but also continued to tour, even going to Brussels to sing there. She did sing some Antley... Antley? Antley Hitler. Antley Hitler! <laughs> She did sing some Antley. <laughs> it's Friday afternoon. I'm tired. She did sing some anti-Hitler satire tunes. Yay me! 
one of which would be accidentally played on the radio during the occupation. Great, I love it. But she was less worried about that than making her own way. Edith continued to work hard as tensions ramped up in Europe. She performed in movie theatres before the movie started, which was a convention at the time. But she was wobbling, unreliable due to the influence of Simone and the difficulties she had faced over the course of her short life. She was drinking and partying and was on her way to rock bottom. She was running short on money and lacked reasonable friends to guide her. In desperation, she reached out to Raymond Asso and asked if he had any new songs. He said he did, but only if she promised to turn her life around. And Edith agreed. She moved in with him and barred both Simone and Louis, her father, from seeing her. Asso took charge of what Beaujau had been doing for fun with Edith, teaching her to speak proper good French and all that. He also insisted on working on her stage presence and movements, as she did tend to stay very stiff on stage, and also had to adapt her diction and phrasing to each song. Apparently she sometimes did sing like the words had no meaning. She would get the overall emotionality of the song, but not so much the meaning of the individual phrases. Think of modern singers who just do vocal runs on every line, regardless of what should be emphasised. Like people who just do melismatic vocals all over Christmas carols, Delta fucking Goodrum. As 1937 came, Asso and Edith developed Edith's repertoire further, along with his pianist friend Marguerite Monod, who also became close friends with Edith. Many of Asso's songs that he gave to Edith were soldier-themed, but set during colonial periods in far-off, exotic places. There was a distinct demand for stuff with a military flavour for some reason, and things in Europe were about to kick off. What was going to come in Europe? I I'll f- beat you up. That's rude. In March, Asso took Edith to see Marie Dubas sing at the ABC which was the concert hall in Paris and not the Australian Broadcasting Commission. Edith went on to study Dubas and how she performed and how she interacted with the audience. Dubas often moved Edith to tears with her emotionality and technique. Edith also loved how the audience adored Dubas and wanted that for herself. As Edith's technique developed, Asso began to push and push the manager of ABC to let Edith perform, despite her reputation. And so finally the manager agreed to let Edith perform as the warm-up act to Dubas. And she Smashed it! Woo! She performed five songs, but the audience wouldn't let her go until she'd performed a sixth. It was a set. Edith was a star. She toured ferociously for the rest of the year, with Asso acting as her manager, composer, and lover. Not sure when that started, but everyone in this story is so horny. I think it's a combination of both France and war. As we know from my own family history, World War II made everyone just get a bit crazy. Um, France plus war equals horn. It wasn't all just Asso, though. Edith definitely influenced him and had her own say in both the music and their relationship. Asso did control a lot of the finances, but like many artists who skyrocket from poverty to wealth, Edith was absolutely terrible at managing cash. We're skipping over the ensuing touring and performing, but by November, Edith was back at the ABC, but not as the opening act. She was striking, a waif all in black whose voice filled the room. She was the star. After her performance, she was booked out for most of 1938, on the radio giving performances at cabarets. She was soon held to be the last of the Chanteuse Released, a subgenre of French singers who sing feminine, fatalistic songs. The Chanteuse Releases, I'm so sorry, were being pushed aside <laughs> by American imports like jazz and swing, which isn't a bad thing because it don't mean a thing if you ain't got swing. And nothing could go wrong. And then things went wrong. On the 12th of March 1938, Austria, after being invaded more or less and infiltrated more or less by the Third Reich, was unified with Germany to form one giant Germany. A super Germany, if you will. Some kind of Reich that would last a thousand years. I'm sure that definitely happened. Yep. 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 This was portrayed in the little-known indie film The Sound of Music, a factual, grounded take on those events. 
and many singing nuns. Aslo sent Edith to a chateau in Chenville, which belonged to the family of Edith's new pianist, Max. I like Max, I can say his name. It's good. Here, Edith had little to do but worry. She didn't know much about the French or European political situation, but there was a lived memory of the horrors of war within France, and especially war with Germany. Her own father, of course, was a survivor of the conflict. Many were fearful, and they, including Edith, turned to their faith to see them through. Edith spent a lot of the time at the church chatting with Jesus, asking him to not let the war happen. There's no word on where Jesus stood on that. Edith was terrified of rumours of the Germans stockpiling poisonous gas and what would become of Paris should the Germans invade. There was at first a sense of inevitability. War was a coming. In September 1938, Daladier, the French Prime Minister, signed the Munich Agreement, or the Munich Betrayal, depending on who you ask, which ceded the Sudetenland to Germany in exchange for Hitler ceasing his annexation of further European territory. Everyone relaxed, and it seemed the war had been put off and Hitler successfully appeased. He's such an easy guy to please, really. I know, right? French news media was censored to cover up further German movements as it became more and more obvious that the German war machine was gearing up. The French and British governments began to prepare both their armies and the armies of their dominions and colonies. Along with a lot of other people around the world, Edith lived in happy denial, trying to ignore what was the inevitable. Hitler would not stop. War was coming. In October, Edith continued to tour, performing with top billing at various famous theatres. She also got herself a secretary, Suzanne Flon, and they became good friends. Asso continued to control many aspects of Edith's career, and following the end of her tour, just before the end of 1938, Edith went to Asso and told him she wanted to look at the terms of her musical contract. Asso was like, ah, shit, as he was getting a lot of cash and influence from his control over Edith, and he asked her for one more year of him calling the shots. He may also have been worried about Edith's ability to negotiate the world of cabaret on her own. Edith soon began to realise that Asso was asking a lot of her, considering she was wondering the actual work. By 1939, she was performing almost non-stop, with no clear answer to the Asso question. Thankfully, or not, in August 1939, while Edith was on tour, Asso was mobilised by the French army and sent to the Alps. Au revoir, Asso. On September 1, it happened. Hitler invaded Poland. On September 3, Britain and her dominions, including Canada, India, New Zealand and Australia, and the Third Republic of France and the French dominions, including Morocco and Tunisia, were at war with Germany. And then nothing much happened for the next four months, because that's the time we call the phony war. Parisian nightclubs shut, depriving Edith of some income, but after three weeks of nothing happening, in Paris, mind you, as we all know shit was very much going down in Poland, Austria and Asia, the nightclubs reopened. A French writer later recalled, Parisians don't really care about anything but Paris. I guess we feel that we are doing our share by giving laughter and gaiety to the nation. I kind of want to beat this guy up. Yeah. Anyway, this section of the script I have titled Edith Piaf, The Double-Edged Sparrow. Edith Piaf's role in World War II was twofold, private and public. On the surface, she served as a public wartime singer who was key in keeping the people of Paris and France hopeful that one day France and her people would overcome the occupying Nazi forces and be free again. She did this through public and radio performances, sometimes with an anti-German twist, or even performing songs written by Jewish musicians and lyricists. Of course, at the end of 1939, Edith didn't know that, and just spent her nights singing for soldiers on leave and doing benefit gigs for the age of the first French prisoners. Secondly, secretly, Edith Piaf did work with La Resistance to help free French and Allied prisoners of war from some POW camps. She was also vital in hiding some Jewish or dissident members of the French musical and art community from Nazi roundups of so-called undesirables. And finally, following the defeat and expulsion of the Nazis from France, Piaf played a key role in the revitalisation of French culture following the occupation. We're not going to touch on that too much because it goes a lot more into like French musical history and it's after the war and this is called Women of War, so we're not doing that bit. 
But part one, the role of the wartime singer. It's probably one of the most famous roles women have played in wars through history, like Piaf's American and British contemporaries, the Andrews sisters and Vera Lynn. Though if you've listened to any of their tunes, you will know there are worlds of sonic difference between all three. But these singers all ended up playing similar roles. They were objects of both lust and beauty to the soldiers they performed for, both a sexual outlet and a reminder of just what they were fighting for. I did have a quick look to see if there was like a German equivalent to Vera Lynn, and I'm sure they do have some, but it's actually illegal to sing many Nazi-affiliated songs in modern Germany, rightfully so. And so this, these wartime singers, I didn't dig very far, and they're hard to dig up. Anyway, fuck Nazis. Like, don't fuck Nazis, but yeah, fuck, fuck Nazis. Nazis. Lonely in Paris without Asso, despite her roster of performances, Edith took up with Simone again, who moved into Asso's old room. She then dropped Simone like a hot potato when she took off with a new man. Paul Maurice, a singer who'd been cut off by his wealthy family because he became an entertainer. Also, fun fact, Paul Maurice was born at Dunkirk. Foreshadowing. On the beach or on the boat? At the hospital, probably. All right. They moved in together, away from Simone, to a place near the Arc de Triomphe, where Le Play had discovered Piaf in 1935. Edith broke her contract with one nightclub to perform in Paul's cabaret. They were together for about two years, and Piaf sort of became Paul's artistic mentor, as Asso had been for her. Asso did find out about their relationship, but was like, hey, we're French, it's what? It's It's cool. cool. And wandered off into the sunset. Never to be heard from again. (laughs) I mean, he did survive the war, but... Woo! Paul also taught Edith a new kind of middle-class refinement and bearing, further improving her performances and public persona. Edith wasn't just singing for the masses. In 1940, some guy named Jean Cocteau met her and ended up casting her in his new play Le Belle Indifferent, which is a monologue performed by a woman to an indifferent man. Cocteau cast Edith and Paul in the lead roles. The play opened on April 20th to acclaim for Edith's performance and ability to hold the audience. Paul was only able to stick around for six performances because then he was mobilised, though not before Edith told him he was a better actor than he was a singer. Ouch. The play ran till May 14th, and then Edith performed for a Red Cross benefit and went on holiday to Provence. She returned to Paris on June 12th. Pause for dramatic effect. As the play ran, however, the German army had surged across Belgium and the Netherlands and completely bypassed the Maginot Line. They were on their way to Paris, a city the Germans had never been able to reach during World War I. On June 14th, Paris fell, and a swastika flag was hung from the Arc de Triomphe. All places of entertainment were closed, and France was divided into occupied and unoccupied zones. Three-fifths of the country were in the occupied territory, and the other chunk were under the puppet Vichy regime, led by Chief of State, former hero of Verdun, Philippe Pétain. Remember in our Matahari episode when we mentioned Philippe Pétain and his complex legacy? Once a hero of World War I, Pétain ended up kowtowing to the Germans and leading the Vichy puppet state, and he embraced his natural leanings toward authoritarianism. In Paris and other occupied towns, there was a sense that the French had been humiliated by the Germans. Paris had never fallen during the gruelling years of World War I. Paris had fallen within weeks of the German advance this time. To retain a sense of normalcy, the Germans allowed theatres, museums and cinemas to be reopened, and defiant Parisians went out in their best clothes and pretended to not give a flying French fuck about the presence of the Nazis. Edith also had an official return in September. However, all performance programmes had to be vetted by the Propaganda Staffel, the Nazi censorship office. 
One night in December, Edith followed up a singer who had made an attack on the English during their set, a clear attempt by the singer to curry favour with the Germans. Edith, in response, sang a song called Le Fagnon, written by Asso. The song, about the French Foreign Legion, having a glorious victory in the face of overwhelming odds, has clear political connotations. She sang a line about the Legion defying their attackers, and as she did, she turned to face the watching Germans. The audience lost their shit at this and started whistling in support for her. The next day, Edith was ordered to remove the song from her repertoire. It's just such a ballsy move. I love it. Just like singing this song and just like dead staring at the Germans. I don't know about that because by this point, she is so famous. They don't really want to do anything to her. Yeah, but it's still ballsy. Yeah, I guess. Like It gets ballsier later on. Yeah, but it's, yeah. Still, it's still like it's a ballsy like. Especially considering the singer before them was like, level. wow, the English sure do suck. It's like the English do suck, but in this yeah. context, not so much. Like, yeah, she's got some protection of her fame, but it's yeah. not like... Like she's kowtowing. Okay. Yeah. She's not kowtowing. Yeah, yeah, it's still ballsy. It wasn't all defiance in the Parisian artistic community. Even before the propaganda staffer gave the order, the French Society of Authors, Composers and Editors of Music, SACEM, who dealt with song rights, blocked payments to Jewish composers before the Germans even gave them the instruction. Soon works by Jewish songwriters were also banned on the radio, along with three of Edith's songs, some for content and one, La Accordionist, because the composer was Jewish. On the whole, Edith was lucky during the occupation. It was important to the Germans to retain some sense of normality in Paris, and they felt keeping Edith around would help distract the masses. She continued to tour and sing throughout the war, and also appeared in a film with Paul Maurice. In 1941, they were often touring again, and Edith eventually ended up by herself in Marseille. As in other German-occupied nations, the Jews of France were treated appallingly, and their identities redefined by Nazi proclamations. All Jews were made to register with the police, and activities as wide-ranging as banking and attending the Conservatoire for Music were soon forbidden for Jewish people. Norbert Glansberg, remember him? Yeah, just was, let me check my notes. Was just one of those people. It was slightly easier to stay safe as a Jewish man in the zone non-occupée, what the French called the Vichy region, and Marseille was a great place to hide. The port city was also swarmed with refugees attempting to flee the country. But to flee you need the francs, and to get the francs you need to work. Norbert was hired by some Corsicans to accompany Edith on her tour, and so he did. Norbert and Edith became unlikely lovers, though they had little in common, and Norbert found her to be quite irresponsible and a big party animal. After Sassem barred Jewish composers from their Jews, Edith became Norbert's financial lifeline, a role she happily played as she was raking it in. During concerts, Norbert would feel sick and nervous. Someone in the audience would call him out as a Jew due to his features and Edith would lean on the piano and he would find support through her presence. Over the next two years, Vichy France excluded Jewish people from more and more professions, until finally Norbert and Edith got their hands on a fake French passport for Norbert that renamed him Pierre Manet. For the sake of simplicity, though, he's staying Norbert. At least they didn't name him Louis. (laughs) Vichy officers and Nazis began to conduct daily searches through Marseille, looking for undesirables. Edith organised for Norbert to hide at her new secretary's farm. The secretary's name was André Bigard, and she also had the family there hide another Jewish creator, film critique and, ma- and director, Massad Biston. I don't know how to say his name. When things got too risky there, Edith arranged for Norbert and I believe Marcel to be hidden by the Countess Pastre at her chateau, and more specifically in the sea caves near her chateau. Countess Pastre was running a relatively elaborate operation, and over the war she sheltered around 40 Jewish artists. Christian Dior was also there during the war at one point. Throughout his time at the Pastre Chateau, Edith paid for Norbert's protection, and he eventually was forced to escape to Nice... Nice? Nice? It's Nice. It's Nice. I know more French than you oh, God, in yeah, this one enough. instance. Huh. 
Throughout his time at the Pastoré Château, Edith paid for Norbert's protection and eventually he was forced to escape to Nice with the assistance of the Corsicans. All through this time, Edith supported him financially. During this time, Edith's songs began to get more political, if not as explicit as what we would think of political songs today. Shrewd La Vagabonde, about the hopes of escape from a grim life under occupation. Life under the occupation became yet even grimmer, both in the occupied and unoccupied zones. In May 1942, the Jewish people of, of the occupied zones of France were ordered to begin wearing the yellow star of David on their clothes. Newspaper propaganda campaigns against Jewish people ramped up, claiming Jews were perverts, criminals and sexual deviants. On July 16, 1942, two days after Bastille Day, 30,000 Parisian Jews were rounded up by combined French and German forces and taken to the Drancy internment camp. Though some Parisians had started wearing yellow stars in solidarity with their fellow Jewish citizens, most Parisians were distracted by their own problems. Where to get food, where to get hot water, and of course, where they could get stockings. Most important. When Edith returned to the city in October, she was given a hero's welcome, as both a symbol of French culture and a distraction from the growing horrors of war and occupation. Her first concert back, she sang only a few old songs, and then followed it up with Le Discuse, by the Jewish composer Michael Emmer, born Michael Rosenstein. Side note, Edith had also paid Emmer's way through France so he could make it safely to the occupied zone. She also sang La Vagabonde and a song called Fuck You, Nicola. Où sont ils mes petits copains? Which basically ah! means, where have all my boyfriends gone? Where have all the boyfriends gone and where are all the gods? Not too political, but then she sang it with the stage lit in the colours of the French flag. The following day, Edith was summoned to the propaganda headquarters and ordered to make the lights neutral next time she sang. But her fame was her protection. She wanted to bring Norbert up to Paris to hide him in her apartment. Not sure of her logic there. But Norbert, still in the caves at this point, was like, no, babe. (laughs) Alone, Edith moved to a new apartment in Paris where she took five weeks off and Simone moved in with her. Because of course she did. Edith took on some new lovers, because of course she did. And Jean Cocteau showed up again at this point, wanting to cast Edith in another film. Come 1943, Edith was singing again at the Casino de Paris and then at the La Vie en Rose Cabaret. By now, the censors were even coming down on her, telling her to remove the popular song The Accordionist, which was by Michelle Immer from her repertoire. I also want to say there's uh, a bit of conflicting information that either Edith's new landlady was either a collaborator or part of the resistance, and I couldn't find confirmation That is confirmation very conflicting information. Yeah. Or she like looked like she was collaborating, but then she was actually helping the resistance. That is a very complicated area. Yeah. Edith and her audience tastes were also changing. Her pre-war music had been all about gangsters, lost love and life on the streets. It was not what you wanted to hear while your country was being occupied by a bunch of ugly fascists in Hugo Boss uniforms that weren't practical at all. Some purists were like, Edith's selling out, and she was like, fuck you, there's a war on. Her songs became more about love stories and hope than before. And, well, awkward segue. Edith's wartime actions were changing too. Welcome to part deux of this podcast, The Private Sparrow. Edith Piaf begins to work with La Résistance. So remember Edith's secretary, André Bigard? They had hidden Norbert at her family farm. André had become part of La Résistance. We're not going to delve into the organisational structure of the Résistance in France right now, but André wasn't so much involved in the sabotage cell, rather a cell that helped refugees and the persecuted escape. She was reluctant to tell Edith, as you don't know who you can trust in such situations. However, Edith figured André was up to something, and finally she was let in on the secret. And then Edith Piaf became André's partner in crime. But is it really a crime if you're working against the Nazis? What is unlawful is not always bad, and what is lawful is not always good. In August 1943, Edith received an invitation from the Germans to perform for French soldiers who were imprisoned in Germany. 
However, to accept this offer often meant the performers would be seen as collaborating with the enemy. But it's pretty hard to refuse, considering who was doing the inviting. Edith and Andre turned this into a plan. Edith agreed to tour Germany for seven weeks, along with her band, and they did. She sang for the emaciated men, and there were many pictures in French newspapers of Edith chilling with the prisoners, of Edith having her shoes fixed by prison camp shoemakers, of Edith taking pictures with the prisoners. Like, here's me in Starleg 14 with Edith Piaf. Here's me in Starleg 15 with John Wayne. I couldn't remember like which famous American celebrities were in prison floor camps, but there were some. Did you Google or we're just... I know some... We're of... giving false information about John I... Wayne. Okay, here's the thing. I know some of the cast of Hogan's Heroes were held in prison floor camps. The weird thing is, though, none of the photos of Edith with prisoners could be found in Piaf's private collection. No one knew where they were. Strange. She returned to France, where she was harangued by reporters asking about the prisoners' condition, where she told them they were top-notch. She must have bloody loved touring Germany, because in January 1944, she was already planning another tour there. In the meantime, André and the Resistance had been très busy, which is French, for they'd taken those missing photos that Edith had taken with the prisoners and were using them to strike back against the Nazis. They enlarged the faces of each prisoner in every souvenir photo and used them to make fake identity cards for the prisoners to aid their travel across Germany once they escaped the camps. Edith... The fake ID cards in her suitcase and her entourage set off for Germany despite the Allied bombardments. Through snow and Allied bombings, Edith performed at 11 different prison camps, secretly handing out the ID cards, aiding many men in their escapes from the camps. Along with the cards, she also gave out maps and compasses. A performance at a 12th camp near Nuremberg was cancelled because the Allies were bombing it, and I'm going to use the military term here again, to fuck. And so Edith was like, fuck, well, I guess I'll go sing at this other camp. Her guides were like, Edith, there's no transport to that camp. And Edith was like, cool, so we're going anyway. They walked in the snow until Edith could walk no more, and then two of her musicians carried her so they could make it to the show. I mean, she was small. She She was very, I'm assuming it's like the snow was like one foot tall, which isn't hard for like a fully grown six foot tall, but but she's like a quarter of her. Yeah, she's not even five (laughs) feet tall. Her like, it'll be up to like her thighs. (laughs) Some of the escaped prisoners even caught up with Edith's entourage and pretended to be musicians so they could be escorted out of the country in style. (laughs) You look very familiar. Have we met before? I was in the band. I play the trumpet. Can you play it for me now? No, I'm out of um trumpet juice. I'm out. Of, that's a trombone. You just made the symbol for. That's it. Anyway, I have so many musical theater friends. They're gonna hate me. Eventually, though, officials at one camp became suspicious, and Edith and Andre realized they would not be able to try that plan again. Sad face. She and her entourage returned to Paris on March fifth. Edith's time as an active member of the Resistance was over, and she instead returned to her usual routine of performances and tours in theatres and cabarets. She also sang at benefits for bombing victims, those who had been taken by the, air quotes, German voluntary worker campaign. And air quotes. And the families of prisoners of war in Germany. She moved across to the Champs-Élysées. As 1944 wore on, even as Allied bombing raids increased and the Resistance grew in number, German control over Paris seemed to be stronger than ever. Gestapo and the French collaborators rounded up Jewish people in greater numbers, and genteel names on the prison lists also grew in number. Still, rumours of an upcoming Allied invasion were making the rounds, and hope that France would soon be liberated grew. At this time, Edith was singing nightly at a club in Montmartre. On June 5th, 1944, pause for the third time for dramatic effect, she sang a song all about a future full of springtime. Springtime for Hitler and Germany. Contrasting the dark present. While she did this, the audience stood in silent rapture. 
Boom, smack. By the next day, news of a massed Allied landing at Normandy had reached Paris and people lost their shit. Subtly, of course, because the Nazis were still in control there. But fuck yeah, the Allies were on their way. I'm going to go watch Band of Brothers. Edith was soon called upon by the Moulin Rouge, which was reopening as a cabaret. It had been operating as a cinema. There she met a hot young thing called Yves Montand, who she thought was a bit saccharine, but a strong performer. Soon they were an item, and Edith took on a mentor role for Montand, as Asso had once done for her. And we're skipping someone into personal drama. You guys have no idea how many of Edith's PF's boyfriends we've cut out of this script. And so... On came August 1944. By August 15th, there were street demonstrations where the French would sing out the band song La Marseille at the top of their lungs. French 25th came, and by the, but with it, the liberation of Paris. Edith was standing on the pavement of the Champs-Élysées watching French tanks roll down the road among a mass of people wearing French tricolours as well as the white armbands of the French interior forces, don't even think about the joke you're thinking about, when German snipers shot at the crowd who all immediately hit the deck or fled. But it was in vain. The Germans had lost and fled the city. Paris was free. Charles de Gaulle, war hero, leader of the Free French, became head of the new provisional French government, which would eventually give way to the Fourth Republic. Not that republic. Outside of France, the war continued. Sad. The Allies continued to push the Nazis back into Germany, discovering evidence of horrendous crimes against humanity as they did. The French now had to reckon with the crimes they themselves had done during the war, and purge panels were set up to punish the collaborators. Or not. Some towns and villages just went nuts and summarily executed collaborators. Justice. Some of whom were genuine collaborators, but others might have simply slept with or bribed Nazis or gone along with them for survival. Women who had slept with Nazis, again, either willingly or for money or survival, had their heads shaved. This all happened in the Netherlands as well. It happened happened in a lot of places. Many French performers and artists were put under the microscope as they had either willingly or been forced to perform and entertain the Germans or changed their styles to better suit the propaganda machine. Remember, though, Edith had agreed to perform in Germany only as an aid to the resistance. She was banned from the radio and eventually brought before a purge panel in October. Like many performers, she was accused of collaboration. Edith admitted that her first tour to Germany had been in part for the cash, and so she would be allowed to keep performing. However, the second trip, as we all now know, was in order to give money, ID cards and maps to French prisoners in order to help them escape. André supported this testimony. Edith then presented the names of her Jewish friends, whom she'd hidden and supported during the occupation. I kind of like the idea of them just, like, popping up in the court, like, in the audience. Yeah. Like, and I, and I. T'was I, I who escaped the Nazis with Edith's assistance. <laughs> the panel's response? No sanction. And congratulations! We now know that 118 prisoners had been able to escape thanks to the fake cards and financial aid. Following the liberation of Paris, Edith went on tour, singing at benefits for war victims. She and her latest boyfriend, Montant, performed in the south of France, where she also met his family. He was soon presented to the press as her fiancé, and they began performing as a duo, Edith helping Montant's star to rise. Their combined musical style was more schmaltzy, jazzy and modern, which people did not like. There was a wish in some pockets of France for their musicians and artists to affirm pre-war values and artistic styles, rather than being so heavily influenced by American genres that were flooding into the country along with the GIs. Tensions began to appear in the couple as Montan became increasingly popular, perhaps even more so than Edith. It was also around now that Edith began to write the song that would eventually become La Vie en Rose. Oh, and speaking of artistic revival, remember Marcel Biston, who Edith helped hide during the war? She and Montan were in a film written and directed by him. Sharing the screen didn't help their relationship, and in October 1945, both of them seeing great success with their careers, Montan dumped Edith via telegraph. 
1945 wasn't a bad year for Edith, though. It was also the debut of one of her most famous songs, La Vie en Rose, which you know, even if you think you don't. Edith's fame continued through until the end of her life, as did her breathtaking, heartbreaking performances. She ended up touring not just Europe, but North and South America. Her turbulent personal life also persisted. She was married twice and had many affairs with single and married men, including the love of her life, Marcel Sedan, who suddenly died in a plane crash in 1949 while on the way to meet Edith in New York. And she still performed that night. Damn. Yeah, and she was like, no one clap for me, I'm doing this for him. Damn. Yeah, she was hardcore. She was. By the 1950s, Edith was addicted to painkillers and even more dependent on alcohol. In 1961, she put out one of her other most famous songs, No Regrets, but in French. (laughs) She died in 1963 from complications relating to her drug addictions, alcoholism and stresses from fame. She was buried beside her daughter, Marcel, in Pierre Lachaise Cemetery, the main site of cultural memory in France. Though the Catholic Church refused to give her a proper funeral mass, Paris came to a standstill on the day of her funeral, for the first time since World War II. In 2013, the Catholic Church admitted they'd made the wrong call there and performed a very belated memorial mass. Very belated. And, like, by then, Edith Piaf was baked into the cultural memory and iconography of France. So, like... Catholic Church was like, my bad. Our bad, our bad. How can we somehow salvage some of our reputation? Anyway. There's a lot here we didn't cover. The post-war travails of Edith Piaf could take up another four hours. She was key in the cultural renewal of French music following the war. Just look up The Three Bells Edith Piaf for more information. There were all her affairs, her drug addictions, her breaking into the American musical scene. There were rumours of an affair with Marlene Dietrich, not to bury the lead there. We'll look at that more when we eventually look at Dietrich in her own episode. Interrupting you, fun fact. Yeah. Uh, my Monstera plant is named after Marlene Dietrich. Is it called Monstera Dietrich? No, it's called Marlena. Oh, Melena Deliciosa, because it's a I love that. Melena Deliciosa. In recent years, there have also been misinterpretations of Edith's role in the resistance, mostly on the internet, painting her as a key asset who freed potential thousands of prisoners during the war. As we discussed earlier, this isn't so. Say it ain't so. Edith was definitely an asset to the resistance, a tool to be used, but her secretary, Andre, and the cells she worked with were definitely the true heroes in that situation. Edith was undeniably brave by distributing the cards to the prisoners, but her fame was definitely a shield for her in that situation, and she suffered little ill-feeling post-war, especially after she was cleared by the purge panel. Regular resistance members in France were under a lot more pressure and danger than Edith Piaf ever was. Edith Piaf has been portrayed and reinterpreted in dozens of media forms across the last 70-odd years, most famously, as we mentioned earlier, in La Vie en Rose, which won Marion Cotillard the Best Actress Oscar. And her music was a key feature of the soundtrack for the film Inception, which also featured Marion Cotillard. Coincidentally. There's also a play about the friendship between Edith Piaf and Marlene Dietrich called Piaf Dietrich. (laughs) Such a creative name. I love it. Apparently it's a really good play. We should see it. Another play called The Sparrow and The Birdman about Edith's working relationship and friendship with Jean Cocteau. Edith Piaf today remains one of the most successful and acclaimed singers of all time. What a life and what a voice and what eyebrows. Endings are hard. As Edith said when she was dying, everything in life you have to pay for. And I paid for this. This was the hardest script so far I've had to research, write and edit because there is so much from her life you want to put in. I'm going to go watch Lovey and Rose because after writing this 10,000 word monstrosity, I think I've earned it. Yeah, you've put in the script here that I'm supposed to call you the greatest human being alive and I'm just not going to do it. Okay, but it fits in with what, what you say next. Yeah, but... So you've got to say it. Okay. You are literally the greatest person alive, Nicola. Thank you. And thank you for listening. If you've made it this far, you are also the greatest human beings alive. And that's the facts on that. 
If you like us, give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts because it helps people find us and more people can listen to us rambling and mispronouncing French. I'm, I'm so, really sorry. I'm so mean. sorry, France. So sorry, Took France. me a lie. That's not even French. <laughs> if you don't like us, we are a very long way into the story of Edith Piaf. So why are you still here? But anyway. All right. I've been Nicola. I've been Hannah. And this was Women of War. Thanks for listening. See you next time.